Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network and features exciting new works in the broader field of Islamic studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. In his groundbreaking new book, Alif is for Allah, Jamal Ilyas takes his readers on a riveting intellectual tour, thematically centered on the interaction of childhood visual culture and affect in contemporary Muslim-majority societies and in Muslim intellectual thought more broadly. Drawing on while also significantly extending and reworking recent theoretical explorations in the field of affect studies, Elias interrogates with lucidity as well as with dazzling insight the promises, aspirations, intentions invested in childhood and the figure of the child in Muslim visual culture. Ilyas convincingly shows that not only is childhood itself a concept and construct fraught with ambiguity, but also that the mobilization of the ideal child through material and visual culture can take remarkably malleable forms and purposes. Alif is for Allah moves seamlessly between such varied contexts such as Iran, Turkey and Pakistan to illumine the depth and diversity of the intersection of piety, nationalism, and visual culture in Islam and Muslim societies. This lyrically written book also includes incredible and excellently presented images, making it particularly well-suited for undergraduate and graduate seminars on material Islam, Muslim visual culture, affect studies, and childhood studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Jamal Ilyas. Hello, Jamal. How are you doing? Hi, Sher Ali. I'm doing very well. How are you? Very good. Uh, thank you again. Welcome back to, to the New Books Network, to New Books in Islamic Studies. A fascinating uh, book. Uh, really uh, was a great pleasure reading it, and uh, it's really made a very new and interesting intervention in the field. So, uh, Jamal, our first question usually on New Books in Islamic Studies is biographical. And uh, I guess with this project, uh, if I could ask you, how did you get to writing this particular book? What uh, led you into this uh, project, if you could give a story, uh, the story behind uh, the writing of this, uh, of this book. Uh, well, um, I, there, I mean, you know, there's always several different things that happen as you come towards a project, but uh, I, it's a combination of several things. One is, is, you know, I have been working, as you know, uh, on um, issues of sort of visual culture in Islamic society and in Islamic history and thought. Um, this is now the third book on that topic. And so for me, in a sense, it's just on ongoing things. And there were certain things I wanted to include, like some of the material that I've discussed here. I was already teaching it and already thinking about it when I wrote uh, Aisha's Cushion. And for a variety of reasons, it didn't fit into that book. And so I always wanted to do something else with it. And that's actually the, the birth of this project. Now, as uh, 
much like Aisha's question, but in some ways uh, extending from that project, it seems that the central conceptual thread of this project is the relationship or the interaction between visual culture and affect and emotion. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little about, you spent a lot of time early in the book talking about this recent sort of field, or I guess field that has become especially prominent in the Western humanities recently, affect studies and emotion, studies of emotion and so on. I was wondering if you could situate this book in this larger uh, field of uh, the studies of affect and emotion. How do you see this project being a part of it or what parts of it did you find useful or not useful, etc.? I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit that part of your book in which you try to situate this book in this larger field of uh, affect and emotion studies. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The first few chapters really very um, definitely are theoretical in nature, um, talking a lot about affect and emotion. I think there are two things. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, this is these are very well-developed uh, fields, as you know, uh, dealing with uh, the Western world. And, and one of my interests, not just in this particular uh, project, but just in kind of theoretical work, um, tends to be to try and, and, and uh, make a certain theoretical um, trends or theoretical models are more relevant to uh, to Islamic studies broadly defined. Um, as you know, one of when a lot of the a lot of um, sort of essentially theoretical works uh, tend to be very Western focused. So in in a kind of they see kind of their context as transparent and universal, whereas in a certain way, uh, a lot of work uh, is very very grounded strongly in kind of a Western modernity, however one would describe it. And this is not at all a critique per se, because it's extremely sophisticated and valuable work. Uh, frequently, but it also kind of limits certain kinds of discussions and certain kind of applications in other places. And so I actually don't see my own intervention as so much as furthering, um, uh, you know, sort of affect theory or history of emotion studies uh, in, in, in a kind of in its mainstream, but more kind of a oblique kind of uh, constructive criticism at the margin and bringing those ideas into uh, kind of the Islamic studies environment. And, and just very briefly, I mean, I think the main thing for me um, is because I don't engage the cutting edge, I tend to always, and I, I work on the history of things, you know, it's a history of theory, the history of emotion studies, the history of aesthetics is one of the things that I try and do to try and then kind of create a modern a modern kind of uh, stage from which kind of people who work, let's say, in an Islamic environment can then construct their own work. And that's, I try and construct that work, if that makes any sense. Now, the other main category, before we come to the specific uh, uh, case studies or context, uh, the other major category of this book is, of course, uh, childhood or the child. And there are two sort of major things that you do with respect to that category. Is One, you show that it's very difficult to define uh, childhood and you show the ambiguities associated with uh, the way in which we imagine the idea of the child. Uh, so in addition to that aspect of your of your argument, if you could share with us a bit, what are the major ambiguities surrounding this definition of childhood? I was wondering if you could also share with us the other major aspect of your discussion, which had to do with uh, conceptions of the, ch of the child in uh, pre-modern Muslim intellectual traditions that then inform modern notions of the child, uh, often in unexpected and unpredictable ways, but nonetheless they do. So I was wondering if you could touch on those two aspects of how you talk about childhood, the ambiguities of definition, and then how we find it uh, reflected in Muslim intellectual tradition. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I think these two things, they're important ideas and they're fairly interactive. Uh, one of them, of course, is is that 
uh, we often don't stop to think about it, but, but childhood as a category is an entirely adult construction uh, in the sense of it's not the state of being a child, but it's actually uh, certain characteristics of being a child uh, which are identified uh, by adults and kind of placed as the parameters in which we kind of define a child. Uh, and the second part of that, and this is very, very important, I think, to social constructions of childhood and also to kind of, um, uh, kind of moral and emotional formations of society, is the idea that um, a childhood is this perfect time of kind of innocence and protection and that the ideal child is essentially innocent and it lives in this hermetically sealed, protected for lack of a better word, privileged environment. Uh, and we do this despite the fact that we know full well that that is not the case. The vast majority of children in the world do not live, uh, you know, extremely protected and safe uh, childhoods, etc. And we do this, and the fact that we do this is we do this for certain, as I argue, for certain emotional as well as moral reasons. And then the other thing, um, uh, as you brought up, is in terms of like, you know, the construction of childhood. So on the one hand, uh, every effectively every functioning modern Muslim society, and by functioning, I mean ones that are not in like the depths of kind of a horrible uh, civil war situation at the exact moment we're talking. Uh, every modern Muslim society participates in kind of a, a global notion of uh, what childhood is. And that is, um, has largely, I, I argue, as I argue in this book, and I, I didn't invent this argument, uh, it's, it's, it's something that you can't separate from the uh, proliferation of uh, modern public education. Even where places where it doesn't exist, it exists as a desire and an ideal, meaning even countries don't have, that don't have comprehensive um, um, public education uh, do have the, uh, they place value on it. And the construction of modern public and mandatory modern public education at the secondary level has resulted in kind of an age graded uh, cohort structure of uh, childhood. And, and, and Muslims participate in this. And simultaneously, Muslim societies also, also participate in uh, they're signatories to all documents on human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the one thing that actually they seem to bring. Uh, quite consistency, uh, consistently uh, on the part of uh, Islamic societies or Islamic majority societies, they bring in the uh, some ideas which are kind of historically Islamic, which then they use to modulate their participation in global treaties on on you know essentially rights of the child or human rights and this that and the other, and that is the notion that actually uh, children owe something to their adults. Um, the fact, the kind of the the hierarchized, duty-bound relationship of child to parent and parent to child, which you find in kind of pre-modern Islamic ethics, and you find, let's say, in you know, in in kind of public um, Islamiyat uh, type aesthetics today, uh, comes actually into the formation of treaties. So, for example, the organization of the Islamic Conference has several times kind of uh, put forward uh, documents on the status of children and. Unlike the international treaties to which uh, all countries in the Islamic world pretty much are signatories, um, these sorts of things frequently, these documents that are put forward by the OIC often have, uh, they talk about a child's duty to their parents. And they essentially, so child rights and child autonomy of person, such as it is at international universal levels, is in some sense constrained by certain religious notions which have been brought into the present. 
you know, one other major sort of theoretical uh, intervention that you make, and now let's shift to the particular case studies that you talk about in uh, the later chapters of the book. But one of the major uh, conceptual intervention that you make is the way you connect, which I found really fascinating. You connect this idea of cuteness uh, with the idea of virtue or, or how a certain kind of a virtuous subject is imagined by the state or non-state actors and so on through visual images, through visual culture and so on. So I was wondering if you could shift to the context of Turkey uh, where you sort of show this interaction between uh, piety, visual culture and conceptions of childhood uh, and how this uh, this entwinement of cuteness and virtue plays out uh, in that context. And I was especially struck by this one example that you discuss both in the Turkey chapter and then later on in the Iran chapter also to do with uh, ways in which the whole animal sacrifice on Eid, for example, is uh, presented in a way that might be palatable uh, to both adult and uh, child sensibilities. So I was wondering if you could sort of perhaps uh, speak to that uh, uh, idea, the uh, interaction of cuteness and virtue as seen in Turkey, perhaps. Yeah, so I mean, the uh, again, I think the, the cuteness is, is I, and I, I'm actually, um, that the section on cuteness and discussion of cuteness is actually one of the things I'm most proud of in the book. But um, the, uh, because it's actually, cuteness studies exist, it's a very small field. So you can write 20 pages and make a major intervention. In any case, um, the, uh, uh, the the point being that uh, there's a... So yes, what I'm actually showing, cuteness studies normally uh, is about certain kinds of nostalgia and neo-romanticism regarding childhood or, or, or things like that. But there's a particular way, I argue, that kind of... Um, Cuteness as a category, uh, uh, it, it tends to bring together two things. It tends to bring together helplessness and, and, uh, and innocence. And, uh, and in so doing, it constructs kind of innocence as uh, the moral category. You know, it's like when you think about innocence, um, innocence really actually means a couple of different things. I mean, one is the notion that it is Innocence in the sense of, you know, in Arabic, asma or asmat in other languages, the inability to actually sin and innocence in kind of the legal sense of like you have not yet sinned. Um, so uh, these two things kind of come together when you're actually looking at children. Right. So adult adult innocence doesn't uh, get inflected by the inability to sin. Uh, they don't come together unless we're talking about religious heroes in the past. Um, in which they don't, you know, because contemporary people are not believed to not have a capacity, an ability to sin. Um, but with children, this idea comes forward. So there's a very strong, I mean, the term I often, often use in the book is the multiplier affect that children actually bring on moral and ethical issues. Now, what this also does in terms of like the other side of like you actually have no knowledge of what is wrong, uh, uh, notions of innocence, which cuteness also brings up. Um, is is that children can then become this location in which uh, adults, ch children and kind of the things around the environment we construct around children becomes the location in which adults sometimes work out a lot of their own anxieties. And that's when the example that you actually gave, the example of the, uh, the, the animal sacrifice um, at Eid al-Adha, well, that's Again, you know, like uh, at, uh, one could say that, you know, well, most people don't see this as deeply problematic, but the argument I'm actually making is, is that perhaps they do. Um, that at some unarticulated level, we do see it as deeply problematic to actually, you know, essentially one, one it rep what it represents in terms of the willingness to sacrifice one's child, but then also kind of the whole market of slaughter, for, for lack of a better term, that actually emerges uh, you know, in, in towards the beginning of uh, Zulhijjah. 
um, uh, that, you know, everywhere. And it's just, it's a little bizarre, the notion of bringing the slaughterhouse into the middle of society in a lot of countries. So I think that kind of the, the, their ways of like to, to kind of go into hypercute mode, as some of these examples actually give in that book, particularly with Turkey, of, of just like talking about this thing, but without in any, not only by not representing kind of the, the, the more graphically bloody aspects of it, but also actively cutifying or making cute things like the knife that does the sacrifice or, you know, things like that is, I think, a reflection of um, adult anxiety, because in some sense, if adults weren't anxious about the violence involved, they wouldn't sugarcoat it. Yeah, and I, and I should mention to our uh, listeners that in this chapter, you also spend a lot of time uh, talking about the Japanese uh, context, of course, where cuteness studies really becomes an important site. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so let us now shift to the other, uh, another major site that you uh, devote an entire chapter on, which is Pakistan. And you, there you focus on the whole poster culture. I was wondering to begin, if you could perhaps introduce to our listeners a bit, what kinds of themes do we find? I know there are multiple themes, but if you could give some highlights of the kinds of themes about child piety that we find in these posters. And then uh, you also bring in throughout the book, but especially this chapter, the whole uh, dimension of gender. And you make this very interesting observation that while you find many images of the girl who is sort of maturing into a woman, but rarely do we find the corresponding image of the boy man. Uh, so I was wondering if you could also speak about this gender dimension of these images and posters in uh, the Pakistani context. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, as you asked, uh, so the, in, in a sense, the kind of in the structure of the bo- book, if we actually think about um, two aspects of child, of, which are important, sort of the cuteness virtue angle uh, and the gendered angle of childhood and virtue, um, there's kind of a sequ- there's a stepped in my, or at least I attempted to have kind of a stepped way of introducing them. So, the cuteness virtue comes from Turkey, Pakistan is the introduction, and then the gendered version is Pakistan, Iran, and these are the being three sequential chapters. So, um, so in the case of the of Pakistan, the materials again, I focus really on um, uh, religious materials that are um, in some sense associated with uh, Sufi shrines. Uh, and uh, the proliferated ones, again, this is not the place, and we don't have time to talk about this at great length, but um, Pakistan has a has a, an extremely um, diverse and rich um, shrine culture, and uh, meaning, and, and of dead saints and living saints and all kinds of uh, things in between, and there's a lot of postering that actually goes with this. Um, so, uh, and a lot, you can buy posters there, people give them to you, you can buy them from a religious bookstore or like a stall near the shrine, etc. And I've really focused on, on those shrine materials, and again, um, uh, the book goes into much greater detail on this because it's not something we can talk about too much right now. But one of the one very common characteristic of say a, of a of a, a poster of a Sufi a peer, of a Sufi um, saint um, tends to be people petitioning it, and very very commonly these people petitioning at the shrine tend to be children. And a lot of these posters they don't. So the poster itself is essentially a painting, and they'll graft on frequently photographs like uh, I mean for we use the term photoshopping they don't use photoshop generally but uh, they will um, graft on essentially photographic representations of real children uh, as standing there praying uh, just randomly sometimes praying and so one of the things that I actually uh, explore is is that what is it that these children add it's already a religious poster what is added to a poster or to the message of a poster, uh, 
um, by adding a child. So one is like, you know, if you just have a child standing on a poster, which is already of a peer, uh, of a Sufi saint, what gets added? Or in another case, if it's about, uh, you know, the power about praying or like I have two examples in there of like uh, at least two examples of uh, posters that actually talk about, you know, this very important uh, phrase, Rabbi Zidni Ilman, you know, Lord increase me in knowledge. Um, uh, and then what does putting a child on it actually bring? And and that for me is actually what it actually represents is some sort of a aesthetic and emotional and moral multiplier. It's like, you know, God, I'm not praying, and even this little child is praying. That's one way of actually looking at it, but there's something bigger that actually happens. The presence of a praying child makes our, our hopes and futures for society better if we have praying children among us in certain ways. So both of these things are happening simultaneously. One is kind of the moral admonition to me as not that I should be more virtuous. And at the same time, the very fact that children are virtuous means that we have a better future. Finally, let's move to the to the Iranian context. And I think that's uh, the chapter in which perhaps most clearly you see the attempts by a state to cultivate a certain notion of citizenship through images of the child and certain uh, uh, threads of piety and so on. And, and you really uh, focus a great deal on how the experience of the Iran-Iraq war in some ways shapes this visual culture uh, around, uh, around the child and, and, and these uh, questions of piety. And the other main argument that you make in that chapter is that you find this shift around the mid-80s and so on, where from a victim of Western imperialism, increasingly these images project uh, the vision of a sovereign agent that is capable of enacting global political change and so on. So I was wondering if you could sort of combine those two threads of this chapter to to talk a little about uh, these images and, and visual culture and the child in, in the Iranian context, uh, how the Iran-Iraq war gets refracted through it and these shifting conceptions of the nation uh, gets projected onto these images of uh, the child. Absolutely. And also, I by the way, I forgot to uh, talk about the gendered aspect when I was talking. So we will come back to that. But yeah, so with the yeah, the Iranian materials are are are, are different in the sense that, um, as you noted, uh, in the case of the Pakistan chap uh, focus chapter and the Turkey focus chapter, I actually these are not state produced materials, and the Iranian materials which I look at is certain uh, are uh, parastatal or state produced materials, meaning um, they're either things like they're they're either things like postage stamps which are actually issued by a government, and uh, or they're um, uh, you know, like for a, a military veterans organization producing uh, children's books. Uh, so they're kind of um, closely related kind of entities. And yes, so one of the things, of course, with Iran is is that, um, um, you know, Iran has, um, one can argue that uh, Iran perpetuates a memory of the Iran-Iraq war um, in order to perpetuate the revolution, as it were. Um, because it's this case, you know, again, the Iran, the Iran-Iraq war started so soon after the, uh, the Iranian revolution that, uh, they became very inseparable in terms of Iran's revolution formation occurred during the war. And, and, uh, you actually notice that there's certain ways of actually perpetuating the regime that commemorate the regime and the Islamic revolution through, uh, the war. 
And one could make all kinds of arguments regarding, you know, this might have much more to do with theological issues of martyrdom and Shiism, etc. And that's not something that, you know, I, we, it is worth kind of, we don't have the time. It's worth discussing, but not something we can really do much here. But that's what actually seems to be happening in this particular case. But as you pointed out, one there is this major transition that happens, is that, yes, it goes the shortly after revolution or immediately after revolution, uh, Iran's self-vision as it's perpetuated is is one of victimhood. Um, and then as the revolution is established, or sort of the new revolutionary regime is established, and it becomes kind of Iran's new identity, um, Iran has very much taken a leadership role uh, in seeing itself in various ways as a champion of the oppressed in other places. So one of the things that I bring up in a very small way in, in actually talking about Iranian education is how uh, very you know, over a period of some years, Iran um, went from actually uh, say you know it's like for example they'd emphasize the victimhood of let's say the Palestinians um, as kind of a model of victimhood, but then soon they start emphasizing themselves as kind of champions of uh, the Palestinian cause. Um, as this is one example, because so then Iran has taken this kind of role for itself as kind of a uh, an Islamic kind of third worldist kind of leadership um, uh, as uh, as its mantle uh, in terms of kind of overthrowing despotic regimes which are free, which are you know seen as 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 essentially puppets or agents of of Western imperialism. So that's one thing that's going on. But the other thing that actually runs through it. Um, um, because these are actually some very sophisticated books, and certainly production quality, they're very sophisticated books, um, is that there's a particular way in which what I'm trying to, uh, I'm pointing out, and it's, again, Iran is the focus, but it gets connected to earlier materials, is that um, there's certain public virtues uh, which are uh, which are emphasized through uh, children's kinds of material, and it's not just for children, it's actually for adults. So, And these public virtues, for example, um, self-sacrifice, uh, and um, service, uh, and how kind of the use of children to talk about self-sacrifice or civic sense or these sorts of things m magnifies the importance of these things. And there's a particular gendered way in which this actually occurs, um, uh, which also kind of the Iranian case brings up in the sense of like, you know, because males self-sacrifice through giving up their lives and females self-sacrifice through giving up their males uh, is how it actually gets constructed. And this obviously has a lot of age implications because motherhood comes into play and being a son, being a mother, all these sorts of things, um, which then also has like big theological re repercussions, uh, obviously in Islamic uh, memory, particularly in Shia memory. Actually, sticking with the Iranian context, uh, Jamal, if I could have you comment briefly on, I think, which was among the most powerful moments in this book, where you discuss uh, the case of uh, Muhammad Hussein Fahmideh. And, and, uh, uh, could you tell our listeners a bit about uh, who this uh, child was, how uh, this case uh, amplifies this larger point that you're trying to make about the state construction of certain notions of citizenship in the Iran-Iraq war context, etc.? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things is, is that there's, uh, so um, Fahmideh was this uh, boy uh, who had, um, who, who kind of ran away from home and, uh, and, and joined um, the, um, the Basiji, uh, the, you know, the paramilitary uh, Iranian forces. And uh, despite, you know, so for example, despite what has been said a lot of the times, critiquing kind of the Iranian uh, behavior in the Iran-Iraq war in terms of taking 
you know, requiring young men and old men to actually fight. Um, it's very clear that the rules were that they didn't uh, actually allow underage boys to actually fight um, uh, by rules. But And so, in other words, there's obviously people look the other way and a culture forms around kind of any a boy who wants to join the army when he's too young to join is actually applauded. This is not just in Iran, but we see this in the West. The First World War literature for is full of this. Um, but... Um, so Fahmide is this boy who runs away from home and then he goes and he he lies about how old he is and he joins the paramilitaries and he uh, and you know the, and then there's the battle of Khurramshahr the battle of Khurramshahr is one of the most important battles in the early part of the Iran Iraq war in which there was a a, a massive um, tank attack on the city of Khurramshahr uh, in uh, in Iran, and the Iranians repelled the Iraqi tank attack by essentially by having people strapped um, bombs, grenades, whatever, to their bodies and kind of went and like clung to the advancing tanks. And uh, this boy Fahmide is did this. Um, so he essentially he sacrificed his life in this in this uh, extremely iconic battle. And uh, after this happened, um, he became a hero. And one of the ways he became a hero is that actually Khomeini lauded his behavior and said essentially like his this the whatever the 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 this little his little beating hearts one act was greater than the act of a thousand pens um and he also said that that little boy is our um he called him Rahbar, which in Persian is guide but uh it, Rahbar is what the Iranian nation called Khomeini so it was Khomeini's title so and also there's like you know the kind of the him, the little boy's sacrifice of his body was juxtaposed by Khomeini to the act of writing, which is a scholar's act. And then he used the term of, uh, you know, that was used for himself for this little boy. So again, kind of creating this juxt immediate kind of juxtaposition of a little a boy's sacrifice of himself uh, to be even greater than the acts of the essentially the scholarly class, the religious scholarly class of Iran, of Muslims, right, the ulama class, and then Iran. So, and then uh, he was turned into this big national hero. His life was celebrated. He was studied in um, in the social studies curriculum. There are posters of him. There are postage stamps of him. In the book, I have this um, um, a reproduction of a of a really powerful uh, poster um, in which. It shows Fahmide uh, departing uh, for war. And it's this extremely grim, powerful poster because it does this thing with children that's normally done with adults. It's basically the man leaving for war and the woman crying and clutching the Quran or in other places the Bible or whatever. Um, so, the, you know, the whole notion of kind of that separation, which the man is going off to die and the woman lets him go, but she's crying. Um, but and this is something that is reenacted, unfortunately, in the world way too many times uh, in history. But uh, but in this case, they actually this dramatic poster does it with children and it's got Fahmide. And then in the background, it has all this graffiti because it looks like this grim neighborhood. And it's got this graffiti and the graffiti has the sayings. Uh, about by essentially Khomeini saying about Fahmide is, in, is a graffiti on the wall of a building in the background. So again, the kind of centrality of this particular boy and therefore his act as kind of a laudatory act is really important in uh, constructions of childhood and in essential sacrifice and virtue. So as a final sort of substantive question, Jamal, I was wondering if you could reflect a bit on... Uh, the intervention that you see this book making in the broader field of Islamic studies. I mean, this book also marks, uh, you know, uh, your sort of uh, 
continued work in questions of visual culture, material religion, and so on. And uh, your earlier work was, of course, much more textually oriented. So I was wondering if you could take a step back and think and reflect a bit on how you see this kind of work and this book making intervention in the broader field of Islamic studies. What kinds of ways it, are you sort of pushing scholars and students of Islam to be thinking seriously about visual culture and so on? I was wondering if you could sort of do a broad reflection on the intervention and also the kind of uh, ways in which you see this book making uh, some kind of a, making a pedagogical statement about Islamic. Okay. Well, I mean, so there are two parts to it. One is the um, one is the visual culture again, as you said. I mean, I've I've been making, and I'm not unique in this. I uh, I've been trying to make a sustained case uh, uh, for taking uh, for using essentially the non-textual. Uh, in a traditional sense, uh, more seriously as a way of understanding society, religious society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, and that, that's why, you know, sort of working on the visual and the material um, and suggesting ways that it actually could be used. And that's what, for me, this book does a lot of that. It kind of just furthers that particular issue, the issue, uh, in this case, how this can be used, how we can think about society um, through the visual, uh, and I, I, I come up with, you know, I, I, uh, um, there, I, I sort of like have these, I think, important for me idea points that I was trying to make or ideas that I introduce. Um, uh, one is I kind of sort of like use this term, the aesthetic social imagination, uh, which for me in this book, I, I argue it kind of helps explain how society does things, why people do things, why things occur, and it's not so. It's not like these kind of like you don't have. Um, direct easy causal relationships but frequently we don't history doesn't work that way you know it's like why do things happen half the time we don't know um and so trying to understand well why do things happen why do people react collectively in certain ways and i that uses this notion of the the aesthetic social imagination which is i i kind of pack into that kind of concept all the emotion studies affect stuff i'm talking about their material culture stuff and then the other thing and this is not my term at all um it's the whole notion of kind of what you know you could call an emotive regime that's one word i use i said you said i use several other um areas in there and that when you actually think that actually people's understanding of themselves of their emotions their first place in the world occurs through their performance we perform our uh, feelings to ourselves and to others uh, and that's sort of like an emo that's what an emotive or even perhaps an emotional regime actually is so these are ideas of kind of thinking about society uh, in different ways and I, I think that's maybe a helpful intervention for people to understand certain things in my own case at this point uh, what I'm very interested in actually doing and this is what I'm doing now is uh, is to try and take these kind of ideas and then apply them uh, to the past, uh, and uh, to apply them to the past primarily through text. So I mean, you know, again, we can learn we can learn about how to look at history perhaps by understanding the present, because I would argue the present gives us a much better kind of human laboratory. Uh, we have much more data on the present. We have we have the texts and we have the people living. And in the past, often we don't have the people living. You know, uh, so you can't ask someone, why did you write that book? Uh, and they can't tell you it's because my mom told me to. You know, um, so uh, so trying to look at the past in in uh, through these sorts of interventions. And I'm hopeful, I hope 
that you know those people who choose to read it it's a dense book even though it has some cute pictures um that maybe people will that it might be helpful in actually thinking about kind of just social movement and human movement through history yeah, I should mention to our listeners that, you know, in addition to the wonderful prose and analysis, this book also has some uh, outstanding and really powerful and interesting images, which actually will make this book very suitable for undergraduate and graduate teaching also. Um, so as a, f- a final qu- question, Jamal, I mean, you've already touched on the sort of conceptual thread that you are now uh, pursuing, but could you share a bit more specifically about what's the next project that you're working on? So the next project is actually a project I've been working on for a while, and and this came on the on the front burner in front of it. Even you know, basically the order in which I was working on things got changed. But um, so it's actually back to being a textual project. You know, it's like I still have a very deep love for medieval and early modern Sufism, um, and so I'm actually working on a history of um, the Mawlavi, the Mevlavi, Rumi Sufi order. Um, um, up to the, from after his death till essentially the advent of modernity and and looking at certain key episodes and so there because I'm focusing on certain transitions uh, which one is the transition you know sort of like the transition into the Ottoman world in which kind of Persian uh, loses its importance a bit uh, in, initially and then Persian loses its importance a lot so that's one of the thre- central threads that actually happens there's also kind of the movement of, of the power base of the order from uh, from uh, the pre-Ottoman world of of Konya, in a sense, to uh, to Istanbul and uh, how that changes, and then the final end, as it were, um, of uh, Persian uh, as a language uh, of uh, in 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 the Ottoman Empire, um, which is I'm these I'm just I'm mentioning these as time period. So that's essentially what happens is that when it, you know the Masnavi Rumi's Masnavi is written in Persian. Um, and but no one, you know, at first certain people knew a lot of Persian, and then they know less and less and less. And then eventually, outside of really, really ethereal kind of little scholarly uh, or whatever artistic and princely salons, no one knows Persian. And what kind of these shifts uh, imply in 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 the history of the order? And that's what I was actually talking about. So I'd like to think of it beyond just kind of a dry historical description of historical moments, but to inject kind of um, the kind of thinking I, I've tried to bring in this book and in other work on visual culture, kind of the whole notion of kind of aesthetic social imaginations, emotional regimes, all these sorts of things, to think about why changes would occur and how they'd occur, rather than this is what the book shows me occurred. Aleph is for Allah, Childhood, Emotion and Visual Culture in Islamic Societies by Jamal Ilyas, published by the University of California at Berkeley Press in 2018. Thank you so much, Jamal, for this wonderful and exciting book. Really looking forward to the conversations it generates. And thank you for your time to come out again on the New Books Network. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sheryl. Thank you again for interviewing me again. So this was my conversation with Professor Jamal Ilyas about his wonderful new book, Aleph is for Allah. I hope you enjoyed this interview. And please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.